I mean, for me, it's helpful because I think it helps ground what you're experiencing within the material conditions of and the situations that you're experiencing them in. And having spent so much time in mental health care, receiving different diagnoses and kind of wondering, well, which is true? What's not? What's true about this? How how do I integrate this into what I'm doing in my life? And I think the benefit of something like a liberation health model is you don't necessarily have to get into the well, is this DSM a valid, reliable diagnosis? What are these features? We can look more practically at like what is this experience? How is this right. impacting you? And then also there are a bunch of people who are experiencing the same things in very similar ways. And it's mm-hmm. not a matter of, you know, you being a kind of defective person with a pathological disorder. It's your body right. is metabolizing a response to these Um, violent conditions. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can't have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. Hello. Welcome back to the, uh, what are we again? We're the clown circus therapy pro-capitalism no. Pod- no. Oh, that's not. Oh, wait. Sorry, that's a different podcast. This is. It's not. It's not just. It's not just in your head. Uh, a podcast uh, about how. I'm gonna stop saying funny things. Sorry. Uh, how it's not just in your head. How the prevailing mental health, uh, mainstream mental health model and discourse about things being all in your head, neurochemicals in your brain. You just have to change your thoughts and your feelings, and then life gets better. But it ignores. <laughs> The rent's too high. The wages are too low. The climate is out of whack. Uh, we we try to um, fill those gaps. My name's Max Golding, LMFT. If you must know the fancy title things, we have Dr. Harriet Fraud. And um, sorry if this gets redundant sometimes, but I'm just going to name the patients. There's like if you if you give to us, no, over that's a certain wonderful. Amount, yeah, that's but wonderful it's, because then we celebrate them because. Yes. Well, yeah. Well, it is the same. It's the same ones every time. We could probably pre-record it. But first winter, Sarah Turner, Rebecca Johns, Justin Harper, Bandila Msimanga, Evan Lee, Ashley, and we always think Liam as well because he's not in the podcast typically, but he does the editing and social media marketing stuff. Um, Yeah. What are we doing today, Harriet? Well, today we are very fortunate because today we can see how something about which we have spoken actually works. Carissa Roberts is here to talk, uh, and by the way, she uses she, they pronouns. She's here to talk about the liberation mental health model, and she lives with her partner. She spent half her lifetime in the patient end of the American mental health care system, poor dear, and lives with a chronic mental health condition. She's a dedicated socialist and is particularly involved in local disability and housing efforts. And before we proceed to enjoy our courageous participant, Carissa Roberts, I want to talk about a little bit about what the Liberation Health Model is, a very little bit, so don't worry about it. Um, the Liberation Health Model has mental health as a triangle. 
there are three sides to it. One is the usual personal triangle. Now, where were you were born? What is your position in your family? What kind of emotional conditions affected you? And that is part of our lives. But it also looks at the other two that are usually neglected. The cultural factors, your gender, your race, your class position, and the social milieu in which you are involved. Because if you are an American, you're living, for example, in a social position that has a lot to do with your class position. And then there's the institutional. And I think a primary institutional one is class, because the capitalist class system has the institutions which are very dominant in our lives. By what I mean by capitalism, because people throw that around without defining it, is the system, which is a class system based on three kinds of people. One is the employers who pay other people wages and make a profit from those wages. Two is the employees who do work for a wage, which is a, and their extra profit that they make is appropriated by their employer. And another is an enabling class of workers who provide the conditions that allow capitalism to continue, like bankers and bank employees, like secretaries who aren't directly um, employers, but help the employer and also get a wage. So that the basic two classes are employer and employee, just like in feudalism, they were serf and lord, and in slavery, slave master and slave. And that that institution, which is usually utterly outside of therapeutic discourse, is also included in this triangle of the personal, the cultural, and the institutional. And can I, Marissa, can I throw something in there? Oh, please. Sorry. Yeah, so one thing that comes to mind for culture, too, is you know we can talk about gender, race, et cetera, but there's other, I think, subtler things, too. Um, I mean, we also could throw in immigration status and yes. language and ability and things like that. But even specifically, like, let's say you have like a, a Vietnamese immigrant family that lives in a town where there are no other people that speak Vietnamese and you have the kid. Um, there's all these like complex factors in someone's life that like a typical individualistic mental health perspective might say, oh, the kid is depressed when it's like, well, they're torn between maybe the family system and the school system, and the school system might also be considered an institution because a school is an institution, and maybe they start to feel like they don't belong, and then they go start doing drugs with kind of like the bad kids. And now, so anyway, this this whole thing, you can see like any number of problems you can map into these areas. So, so there would be elements of culture there, there'd be elements of institution, and there'd be elements of, of personal um, so, so it's not necessarily always a checklist either. Like, oh, well, here's the check boxes that I kind of mm -hmm. fit under. Things kind of blend and weave in in a lot of complex ways as well. So that was it. Sorry, keep going, Harry. That's great. I'm glad that you brought that up because each aspect of our lives mutually shapes all the other aspects of their lives. That's why it's rather a um, scarce and inadequate model to only look at one aspect of our lives. So today. 
we are particularly blessed by Carissa Roberts' willingness to share her experiences so that this model comes to life. And one of the things that I would like to ask is, Carissa, what brought you to this model of mental health therapy, a fairly recent model, I would add? Yeah. So I'll first, I want to start off by saying thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, I'm very excited to be here and it's really, really, um, it feels like a great opportunity to be able to talk about some of this stuff because people don't like talking about it a whole lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I got into the liberation health model through this particular podcast. Um, I experienced um, a lot of different modalities through mental health care, um, but it, it took kind of more of a leftist slant in order to be introduced into um, this particular um, modality, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and what really brought me to it is being able to recognize that um, a part of the issues that we face and the distress that we experience and what makes life so complicated uh, and are really difficult and results in these behavioral expressions and sometimes um, what's classified as criminal behavior, um, that this all kind of boils down to how we're interacting with these broader forces in our life and, and how we experience being within them. Um, and so it, being introduced to the liberation health model uh, and being able to integrate these cultural and these institutional factors into uh, an individualistic diagnostic approach uh, for me was particularly liberating um, given that uh, so much of my experience within the mental health care system was um, as being a person who was um, maybe not in some way defective, but who was really coping in unusual, bizarre ways with the world and, you know, wasn't participating like should have been expected. Uh, and the liberation health model gives a kind of uh, legitimizing um, slant on uh, on this reality that we all live in neoliberalism, we exist in this, you know, capitalist system, and that has real effects on our lives. And for some people, um, you know, these are effects are to act out. And for some people, these effects are to shut down. Uh, but we're all impacted. And, you know, we're, we're best served by being able to look at it and, and talk about it in a connected way and, and build that consciousness together. I think that's really important because the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, DSM, pigeonholes people into various pathologies that match quite conveniently for the pharmaceutical industry, that match with um, medications as if they are some kind of abnormal, as if there were a normal, abnormal manifestation of humanity where all, every experience everyone has is a biochemical experience because all our factors work together. And so part of what I am impressed by, Carissa, is your feeling that this allows you to be a person and not some kind of freak of nature with a chemical imbalance. Right, exactly. 
yeah, that these, you know, one of the phrases that I learned along kind of my journey through mental health care is that, um, you know, a lot of these coping mechanisms, you know, they're maladaptive now, but they serve a purpose. And it's important to uh, pay attention to what kind, you know, what, what should I try to, or, or why is this particular behavior happening and happening in this way? Uh, and for me, a lot of that is, um, why is it happening within such an alienated context? Um, and going back a little bit to what you said at the beginning about people being pigeonholed into individual diagnoses, you know, from the perspective of a patient in a lot of these treatments, you don't have other people you can collaborate with. It's, you know, the, the caretaker in the room, the person that you're looking to, that life raft that, um, you know, who's serving in that counseling function. Um, you know, it's, there's a certain amount of deference to that person, to that expertise, to that certification. And which, you know, if you're, it, it makes it difficult on, as a patient, especially for me starting out as an adolescent patient, a pre-adolescent patient, is, um, you know, you kind of assume what this person is saying is right and they know the right way to go about it. Um, uh, and when it's just you and that person in a room, there's not a whole lot of intervention, in ha in intervention happening on the front of the family, on the front of the um the pressures that you're facing in your community and, you know, all these factors that are ignored in, when we go into an individualized approach and we close the door on these sessions. That's so important because it, you know, to have this one-on-one -on -one makes you think that this mirror in which you are reflected, this therapist's mirror is your truth. It is a truth. And because therapy is not embedded in the institutions that help to form us, people feel that there's something absolute about it rather than, you know, understanding that the family isn't the greatest institution, but that's what we've been abandoned to. And so maybe you've been looking in a mirror that's a twisted mirror, the mirror of your family. What do you think? Right. So, it's, um, you know, something I've noticed just in the last decade of, of being involved is that I feel like we've gotten to a place where, okay, some of these mental health issues are more destigmatized in a broader context, but what we all take for granted is um, the validity of the diagnostic system that we use and these approaches. Um, and, and that's not to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say we're not experiencing distress, there's not harm happening. Um, but to say that you as an individual, your chemicals are reacting weird and you're, you know, not acting like in a, so, a pro-social kind of way. Um, you know, we're going to say you have an illness. We're going to, you know, potentially medicate you and potentially from a young age. And I, I think a lot of that is a disservice to people who are... Um, you know, for the most part, just trying to do what they can to navigate a a difficult lifetime. Exactly. Don't get me started. Well, <laughs> you just well, you touched on for me, and I'm trying to soften on this because 
clearly I have anger issues around this, but I think it's okay the main. Be angry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, thank you, Carissa. <laughs> oh my God. I have to tell myself that too. I'm like, you know, there's other the, stuff going on, but the anger is an okay part to feel but, too. But I think well, the, the the mental health, the mental health disc, the the yes, uh, to piggyback on your the first comment in that that piece you just said of the stick, there's a destigmatization kind of happening. There's a, there's an almost you could almost call it a movement of awareness, you know. But I also think that there's a sort of hashtagification, and this the social media world is is playing an influence, and the and the nonprofit industrial complex is having an influence, as, as well as you know big pharma and all the forces that be, because the, the the vast majority, not all, but the vast majority of this discourse is individualized. So right. even when I see, I mean, I like I ranted about this in a um, a solo solo one I did that was critiquing TikTok therapy. Um, it was a Parts of it were a little mean spirited, I think, but it, it's that there's especially the I think the younger, younger to mid older millennial range humans seem to be experts in the language to describe individualized mental health issues that are almost entirely coming from the DSM or they're coming from certain elements of pop psych from the mm-hmm. sort of self help movement of the eighties to now, you know, just total kind of neoliberal um, ideology transmitted yeah. into what seems like either scientific psychology or or something that seems legitimate and institutionally valid um but it's almost always decontextualized even in, even the and I'll just say this too that the the interpersonal concepts sometimes and I these so these are valuable concepts sometimes but things like um gaslighting and um and the concept of invalidation and things like that there's these interpersonal processes which I think are better they're they're at least moving outside of the individual but there's there's still somehow shaped into this individualized like mess of like I'm being anyway I'll just go too too far down on this rabbit hole. No, we, I mean we, I just, will we need to broaden it. We just need you. to we just need to zoom the hell out of it. I really want the mental health moment right now to say okay, finally everyone's kind of admitting that they're all suffering a lot, and maybe maybe people were pretending too much that that wasn't happening. Okay, mm-hmm. now where's the suffering coming from? Because it's not coming from within yourself. That's that's such a load of shit. That's not where it's coming from. Most of the time, yeah. I think. Yeah. So oh, go also, ahead. <laughs> it's also very important for people to realize that no changes have ever happened without anger. And that mm-hmm. anger is important. It just depends on where it is directed. And to be validated as humans, suffering. And I think one of the problems is that psychologizing has been excusing class oppression, gender oppression, racial oppression as an individual problem rather than a reaction to a social mess. And I think it's gotten even worse as capitalism in the United States is starting to be out of control and unable to provide even the dominant race and the dominant sex's needs, no less everybody else's. And Mm. we are a declining empire. And these things are getting stronger. And the reaction against them is now getting stronger. And Carissa, what you are presenting is a very important rejoinder to that individualizing as pathology our upset at a social decay and corruption. It's very important. Absolutely. And I mean, I want to bring into this discourse, it's important because I think 
um, recognizing that psychologizing is largely a like a bourgeois kind of concept that um, for me growing up in a white passing body and I, I largely feel like a white person in the world and largely disconnected from my own um, a kind of indigeneity through my family and through abuse and violence. Um, but recognizing that, uh, you know, uh, someone with in an upper middle class kind of environment who is experiencing distress looks very different from someone who's, you know, raised in a lower class environment and maybe yeah. um, engaging in what is determined to be criminal behavior and end up in prison and then, you know, are engaged in, in what is, I mean, I consider it to be slave labor within prison. And yes. that is part mm -hmm. of, you know, the capitalist machine is that, you know, we can privilege certain kinds of mentally disabled people as being worthy of a diagnosis or as being um, unworthy and receiving of a sentence. And that, you know, we really need to look at if we're going to um, install these mental health approaches and uh, we have to recognize the ways in which who even gets mental health service and what that service looks like and what the privilege of a diagnosis versus a, a sentence, you know, that impacts people and that's a direct consequence and then mm. directly feeds into um, our current neoliberal capitalism. Yeah. That's and it's, a wonderful it's parallel. It's violent because also that concept that you just articulated that a, diagno a diagnostic tool becomes a sentence that you are X, you are a anxiety-ridden, depressed borderline or something like oh, that. Oh, I see. I meant more like a criminal sense, like you're, you know, engaging in some kind of shoplifting or something that, you know, the police will come and get you and lock you up for. And then, yeah. you know, well, you'll get engaged in that sort of... Well, because well, it goes the other way around. There's stats on how, like, you know, statistically speaking, white kids get mental health services and mm. black and brown kids get juvenile hall, right? Yeah. For the same thing. That this is this is that sort of issue of implicit bias, right? Sort of gears of history turning still into the the institutions and within the you know the comp the complex web of society now. Like there's no individual racist, but somehow like the teachers, the cops, mm -hmm. the school counselors, mm. they go like, oh well, that white kid he's smoking a little weed. Oh, he's probably depressed, right? And right. Like the brown, the brown kid. Uh, we got to We got to call the. Uh, what do they call them? They're not calling them cops. The security officer, security or officer guy, whatever the guy that's a sheriff that's like always smiling on campus or whatever. Um, that just happens to have Gun. a lot of weapons and <laughs> right. <laughs> just like just hey, just go talk to them because they can't do that. Um, but I, and but I think that's also. But the, just to say too, there, there's a huge class element to that as well because it's not. Um, this well, yeah. So it's 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 also going to generally be like the poor kids are getting targeted, but there is research to show even the poor white kids are you know are going to get yes, get the mental are. health more often. But anyway, yes. Yeah. If you, but one of the things that I I was doing was taking your very smart word sentence and saying, well, there is another way of sentencing people, which is pigeonholing them into pathologies. Absolutely, yeah rather than looking at all the complexity of them and all the complex co-determinants of their position, which may be a very rational adjustment to their position, whether they're on one level, you know, position in the family, but position in the society, because they're, 
you know, there's a very different outlook if you expect that you will be treated well or if you don't. And you expect that you're somebody and your parents are to be recognized and they speak the kind of language that people on television speak, which is the right language in quote and is the correct way to speak and the correct way to dress and the so I was exactly told that by my dad growing up. Yeah. The you know, the Midwestern accent. This, you know, this is how you get jobs. This is, you know, if you want to put in the work to doing this stuff, this is what you need. And fortunately we just grew up with that. Yes, and I Ohio. did too. my um mother would say to me, because I'm from New York, don't dentalize your teas. Like you don't say zounce hits. Huh. That's what they say in Brooklyn. You say don't oh, dentalize. Hit. You that- dentalize your teas when you say don't. <laughs> don't. I love that shit. Hit. Is that is that uh, is that like a linguistic term? I've never heard that term. Yeah, it's so, so I'm fascinating. Actually, yeah, linguistics. It is. Yeah, it's like a phonology, phonetics kind of term. Yes, wow, it is. And that you have to pronounce the final consonant. You don't say oh. You say her. Because so otherwise, you know what, you're not supposed to dentalize the language or otherwise they're going to think that there's something wrong with you? Is that how it... Yeah, that you're going to be pigeonholed and then you better watch out. You know, <laughs> it's that you have to... My mother would say you sound like a lower middle class Jew. You know, oh my God, not that. Uh, you have to sound like an upper class Protestant if you want to get ahead in school, in life. And so you'd better not speak, quote, incorrectly. Correct for whom is not defined. But well, if, if you, de- yeah, if you dentalize, you have a personality disorder. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's what right. that is. Yeah, and it's, you are marked. The idea is you are marked by the lower class mark. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to be, because that isn't the way you succeed in life. And of mm-hmm. course, if you're, a different color, your color marks you, your gender marks you. And these are all marks of inferiority in the culture. And you get to feel all marked up and blacked out. Yeah. Because the things aren't recognized as such. You're touching upon what you were saying about the diagnostic labels. You know, this is something I feel like it's a mess. Having been a patient for over 10 years, like I can go through half the DSM and just be like, oh, yeah, there's that, there's that, there's this, there's this from that time. And I got to a point where I really started wondering, like, well, I mean, you start wondering, like, which is actually right and who's who's lying to me or who's not, not not even lying to me, but like who doesn't actually know their profession to a sort of like, well, these are all diagnostic impressions and these are based on like, in part, information that I'm willing to reveal to the person um, that I'm meeting with. Did you ever ask any of the clinicians you worked with, so which DSM diagnoses do you have? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, No. absolutely not. Although, I mean, the person I work with, um, I know she's a little open on her site about some of the stuff she's been there in the past. So I appreciate that. (laughs) Mm. Um, But having received all these different labels, you know, there, you kind of recognize, well, there's some things that are helpful and that is trying to help me sort of identify in my pattern behavior. But a lot of it is just really messy and not actually getting at 
why do these issues keep cropping up? Why do new issues keep cropping up? Like what is happening fundamentally <laughs> that is producing all of these outcomes and that, um, you know, for me, I felt, I, I don't think I was ever really labeled this way, but I felt like I was probably like a treatment resistant kind of person where, um, and not that I didn't engage with the therapies as I was going through them. Um, but I think like not recognizing the cultural and institutional pieces and, yeah. and for me, an internationalist perspective. And I mean, really learning about like how imperialism works is like, oh, well, <laughs> it, it kind of trickles down that way um, where mm -hmm. these fiscal monetary policies, if we, you know, really want to start to get into the weeds, we, we have to be willing to go to a, a macro political economic scale and, mm -hmm. and recognize, you know, for me sitting here, my I've got this uh, upper middle class kind of depressive, dissociative sort of type, but that like, a lot of people are in class situations where like mm. your entire country is trying to pay back loans to the IMF and like <laughs> U.S. people are trying to pay into that or also sell your labor to a global supply chain that exports the labor to other countries so that it does not have to pay a fair living wage. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and that, you know, that impacts other people. And I don't want to, you know, bring a neoliberal diagnostic epistemology to people when I'm I would much rather be like, yeah, let's collectively struggle because this is, <laughs> let's not put up with this. This hurts us. Yeah, well, I, you know, I've dealt quite extensively in my practice with sexual assault. And one of the things that's a direct example of what you have articulately discussed is with sexual assault, it's exactly the parallel of the imperialism you mentioned. It's I want it. I'm entitled to it. I'll get it. Mm -hmm. Who cares about the personal cost? That's capitalism. I want yep. profit. I don't care if you suffer. I don't care if this is inadequate. I'm making money. I'm right. winning. And that is an analogy for rape as well. And one of the things that's very interesting that is in, in 1452, the then Pope put out an encyclical saying that any explorer, because people were starting to explore then, any explorer who comes upon a land that is not Christian has a right to invade and utterly conquer that land in order to convert its inhabitants to Christianity. And that mm -hmm. is invade and conquer is rape. Invade and conquer is sexual assault. Invade and a lot of time rape was part of it. I mean, oh, part totally. of conquest. Yeah. It's always part of conquest. If you read Susan Brown Miller's extensive book on rape, it's a weapon of war. In Bosnia, it was specified because you invade and conquer that population. And that invade and conquer is a capitalist mentality. And so people who feel intruded upon, it may not be an accident. You know, it's all around us, that kind of rationale. Why do you invade and conquer or try to conquer and destroy other countries? Wait a minute. Is invade and conquer a great idea? <laughs> it's capitalist plunder that, that started it and enhanced it, whether it's the genocide of the Native Americans or the enslavement of Africans or the wage slaver of immigrants. It doesn't matter. 
it's the same idea, and people are right not to want to be colonized. And so I think getting into the anger at colonization and invasion is righteous anger. And we can help our clients to do that rather than blame themselves if they're angry. We can give them a good outlet for their anger. Well, on that, on the anger and stuff, I wanted to ask you, Caressa, because I actually put up a little triangle in front of me and I wanted to jot down some notes. Um, we, don't, we don't have to do this formally, but uh, that's one thing I wanted to, I know we talked about doing the video thing, but the connect, connectivity piece wouldn't have worked so well. Um, but I wanted to put this little image into the show notes. And so I tried jotting down a couple of things as you were talking, but I realized we were just, we were weaving through so many things. Um, but, you know, personal, cultural, and institutional are the three areas of the trifecta here. Um, I had jotted down for cultural white passing, indigenous, and woman. Are those three things accurate? Yeah, so I go okay. woman and non-binary. It okay. gets it's kind of goofy, and I mean, mm -hmm. diagnostic label-wise, like mm -hmm. I, I mean, I have a dissociative identity disorder diagnosis, and so for okay. me, like I work with different parts within myself, and kind mm -hmm. of collaboratively, we just sort of try to show up, and generally, like that's a female passing kind mm -hmm. of person. I mean, but there are female and male and non-binary parts within like my internal system that mm. aren't, you know, we don't, it, I don't try to live life as a bunch of different people and quite mm -hmm. try to figure out like how, how do I collectively like manage feeling a lot of different ways about things all the time. <laughs> um, mm. But yeah, for me, I mean, it's, it's females fine, but I don't want that yeah. to be like the sum of it because it's a yeah. lot more complicated. Well, I mean, there's a lot there actually. And well, I just put women slash non-binary. Um, I mean, I could just put non-binary if that feels more accurate, but um, I guess, well, because the, well, just on a, a quick comment on it is that, that that's because if you're raised, if you're raised being told that there's a, a gender binary and then there's certain culture norms and expectations imposed on you within family and then all the different kind of sectors of society, but you don't feel the way that people are treating you, then there's just a whole slew of things going on, right? Like from the, the cultural, personal and institution. So, I mean, you could dig yeah. into those if you want to and I can jot things down or, you know, <laughs> whatever you I want mean, to do. I'll, I'll just do a real quick point because I have kind of okay. an unusual experience with that growing up. So, okay. I mean, there were definitely like strict male, female kind of gender binaries. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as like my parents' participation in those roles, like my mom was a not a very feminine person. And my dad mm -hmm. really encouraged my sister and me to like wear clothes from the boys section and to um, mm -hmm. really kind of try to defy what is fed to us as gender norms and engage with, uh, I don't know, model rockets and these kinds of mm -hmm. not so feminine things. And I really appreciate that. Yes. <laughs> Wait, so um, I don't feel a lot of like weird stuff about having a non-normative gender expression because I had but, really short hair or whatever. But but you said that, it, that, that there was a strict male-female binary and that they had kind of encouraged <laughs> you to like, you know, gravitate yeah. toward more quote-unquote masculine activities and expression yeah so oh, it's, it's i mean it's kind of bizarre so my mom not so much my mom probably mm -hmm. wouldn't care one way or the other you do what you want you tie your hair however you want to express mm -hmm. um but my 
dad, I mean, he was really encouraging about that, but then he and my stepmom are both Catholic and kind of the way they navigate their life and set up labor in the household and the way they talk about who does what labor is quite gender coded. And um, and something my dad will say is, you know, I do the work I do and make the money I do so that she can do what she does, which implicitly doesn't actually like make a living (laughs) or she works, you know, two jobs or however the setup is at the time. And that kind of, it's still fundamentally is sort of my dad is head of household um, and that, yeah, my stepmom is quite involved and I don't, I don't think she's not involved, but I think, I don't know the way my dad treats the dogs in the house or the way that, um, you know, he, he uh, got the police involved in a custody thing when I was younger and um, mm-hmm. that kind of fundamentally still seeing yourself as this dominant figure who has the power to, um, you know, give money to someone or say yes or no to the spending or, mm. um, yeah. It's interesting because okay. those are different messages, but one of the Right, yeah, I get a little off track. <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. I'm not saying you're off track, but one of the things that's conveyed to children, perhaps less now than it used to be, but it certainly is still conveyed, is that there isn't a choice. There are two genders and that's it. Because part of the way you narrow people's options is that some are unspeakable. They're so different. And so they're not spoken. There's one reality rather than multiple realities about everything. And that's really an important thing that you're taught what 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 you've caught rather than what you've been taught is much more powerful. And you catch the message that there are two genders. That's it without any discussion or choice. And so you grow up having unspeakable parts of yourself because they can't be, they're so aberrant, they can't be spoken. And that's a very powerful inhibitor of human beings. I wonder too, when you have a kind of, so I guess if you're saying white passing, but indigenous, like, so when I, when I think of my family, I think most white families well, it's not totally true. But when there's a sort of, um, I think a lot of white people have an almost cultural void or what they think is a cultural void. Like they're they're devoid of, of a culture. Does that make sense? It's and like a, a neutral the, race or something. A, a, new, right. a neutral or a default mode. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not true, but the belief of that, I think actually makes it harder to examine internally what mm-hmm. the actual culture is, if that makes sense, right? So right. if there's something like patriarchy pleasant, present in a pleasant, patriarchy is definitely not pleasant. No. If it's present in the family, but you don't think that you're a part of any kind of active culture, then it's easier to just to not be aware of the fact that it's happening or to make it much right. more difficult to shine light on it or to talk about it, right? Yeah. Right. There's an almost collective denial. Or maybe the people that are noticing it and don't like it, they notice it and don't like it, but they especially can't say it because it's a well, sensitive, yeah. Yeah, and taking it one step further, when someone tries to say it, then there is a kind of dissociative sort of response or a kind of 
a heightened emotional experience that then is subsequent to like a later amnesia. <laughs> I think yeah. a defensive a defensive response to, and I mean, this is a, a little bit of a tangible, even remember in like group, uh, group theory class in grad school, one thing that was pointed out to us, there's a lot of research on this from uh, Yalom, who's like the group therapy guru person, yeah. That um, the naming a group process tends to direct hostility toward the individual that points out the group process. Meaning, if you're in a group of people and someone points out, like, wow, there's really a lot of people cutting each other off and not really listening to each other, that instead of people saying, yeah, that sounds true, maybe we should do something different, it's just like, what's wrong with you? Why are yeah. you saying? Why are you saying that and bringing bringing the party down or whatever? Right. Well, what are you gonna do to help? <laughs> yeah. So anyway. Yeah. It's also a direct message to dissociate. If there's only one way to be, and you may not be it, you better just crush that right away. You better put right. it in the compartmentalized place where, it, where you shut it down. So that there are messages to shut down and dissociate from parts of yourself, which you know are there, but you are getting a message that they better not be. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then, you know, that's what we get in our one-way messages of what's correct. Like to be white is correct. To be bourgeois is correct. To be poor is incorrect. So I put I put dissociation on the on the personal side because I guess that's well also on the institutional. I put I put dissociative identity as a diagnosis because that's an institutional factor, yeah. right? The actual diagnosis. The, the live experience of it, dissociation is, you know, that's a fair, you know, well, like a fair most description people dissociate. of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have yeah. to, you really have to look all of hypnosis and most of art is based on dissociating, being able to be one place emotionally and another place physically, because you don't survive childhood if you can't dissociate from what these people are doing because they control your life. Yeah. And so you have to dissociate. You don't have the mental armature to fight and you don't have the permission to fight. So you better leave the premises. Yeah, that's for me as a, I mean, that was something as a young child, like I didn't ever have the words to describe. Like that's what I was experiencing. And I knew for me, it was like, uh, you know, there was a lot of conflict between my parents. They got divorced at a very early age and step parents got involved and that kind of made things messy. And um, so a lot of times it was kind of it, something might happen during the window of exchanging the children. There might be a kind of verbal altercation between the parents and you as a child are just like there to be handed over to the other parent for your time with them. Um, and so it's just like, sitting on the couch and like your eyes become glue and like for me it's like I became so small uh, and like I not that I didn't know where I was because it's like I'd be in the room but I wasn't in the room I'd just be like I mean for me it's just like I get feel like it's like I'm in a shell of a body and I don't like have a whole lot of power to move or I just kind of look around him and just like emotionally disconnected from what's happening. And I mean, which was like helpful when (laughs) you're young. Um, And then I kind of, I mean, for me, when I went out to college um, and having spent now some years in adult life, like 
the adults don't really behave with each other like my parents did. Uh, and kind of recognizing that like this threat response still sticks with me. And it's like, this is my individual story, but we're all people kind of with these stories. And, you know, some of us have diagnoses and some of us have more intrusive issues. Um, but why is this violence happening and what is the harm? And I mean, for me, it's kind of like, okay, well, what are, what's causing my parents to behave in this way? And, you know, they're strained in their relationship, but there's always kind of a sense of you're just arguing over what's trying to, you're trying to do best or something. And that this sort of arguing for me required kind of going up the chain of my family and being like, well, you know, how, where is this emotional disconnection coming from? And why is like being angry one of the only like responses that were allowed, <laughs> but only in very, like only in very narrow search situations. Um, and, and that kind of ropes into kind of what we touched on earlier about like white passing is that, um, I mean, I'm, Irish and I'm Polish on my dad's side. And then on my mom's side, I'm Native American, Indigenous and Lebanese. And then like French Canadian, which to me is like a, probably like a colonizer identity. Um, and, and that growing up and having kind of like different ethnic experiences with the different grandparents and the different lines of family, it's like, okay, well, there's this cultural sort of piece to it but I wasn't there wasn't ever ever any kind of recognition of like what is whiteness or how how is this I I think too for at the stage in my family of my great grandparents and my great grandparents I think it's kind of in a white assimilation part of my family where I think it is perhaps and I don't know for sure, but perhaps like fitting into whiteness is part of what was wanted and seen as desirable. And I mean, for them, you know, my great grandfather and my grandfather knew each other because they were on the police force together. Um, and so you have a Lebanese man and a, an indigenous man in Michigan on a police force. <laughs> and it, it's, you know, knowing knowing some of the abuse instances that happen within, um, you know, whether it be physical abuse or like incest um, on, on both sides of the family, that it just didn't get talked about. It, <laughs> no one talks about it. It's, it's repressed discourse. And like, like you said, to bring it up is bringing that threat onto yourself. Yeah. And for me in my context, like, I choose estrangement over that because at that point, like at this point, my body can't quite metabolize it within the attachment relationships of my family. Yeah, well, we do learn what not to not to acknowledge without getting into trouble, and that's um, since it's caught rather than taught, and it's inexplicit. It can mold us in ways that are powerful because it's not accessible. Therapy can help, but it isn't accessible because it isn't even mentioned, it's unmentionable. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. these, I, I wonder too, as I, I look at this and jotting these things down, and so on the personal side, you have the dissociation, the family trauma and conflict, you mentioned abuse, incest, and then now there's 
the family estrangement. I, I relate to the estrangement. I, I had to go that route as well. Um, yeah. And then we have all these complex cultural factors. I wonder for you, because I've I've done this a lot over the years, um, especially since meeting Harriet and really going down this rabbit hole of like really trying to expand the view out um, historically, economically, et cetera, politically. Are you able to kind of hold the two sides of like, here's what happened to me in my family system and culture. And also I understand almost historically, like, like where the thing, where the things went wrong within my family. Does that make sense to hold the two? Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. No, I spend a lot of work working on holding the two. Um, yeah. I, like I still feel have like anger toward the perpetrators and also understand like empathy of like, well, this is why they ended up that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, for me, I feel like I'm mostly there. Um, my, like, as far as, Mentally, yeah. Rationally, I'm very there, very like much. Intellectually, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it, intellectually, I'm completely on board with like, yes, wow, you experience really tough stuff. And of yeah. course, you know, you respond and sometimes that response isn't super palatable for people and you, mm. you know, cause further hurt and violence. And um, and also, um, I have a body <laughs> that feels things. <laughs> And, and that, yeah, it's, I can, I can definitely like be patient with myself and be patient that it's a grieving process. It's an emotional kind of emotionally loaded Mm -hmm. all ends of the spectrum process of like, I, you know, I grieve things like, um, and maybe I shouldn't grieve it, but like the, the kind of emotional repression that I, I think particularly like my mom experienced based on what she went through and kind of wanting, wanting to be able to be like, not here's how you point fingers. Cause I don't think like we all point fingers, but, mm-hmm. but to be able to say like, you don't have to respond by always having to protect everybody and being on guard and by having to have a very tough, like bitch, like person (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. kind of a front. And, and that works in a lot of ways. I mean, she's quite successful in the things that she's pursued in her life and her career and what she does. But, um, you know, I, I, here's kind of a funny thing that she'll, she would say, (laughs) um, is they, when she was at work, um, kind of when I was younger, they all had to do Myers-Briggs testing and Mm. it became an office joke and like a person, like a personal point of pride for my mother that she scored a hundred percent thinking and zero percent ceiling on that test, (laughs) which like setting aside the legitimacy of a personality test like that, (laughs) um, You know, that that's that's kind of just I mean, that was like a point of pride for mm-hmm. uh, and that's kind of the culture of the family I grew up in is like being sensitive and being vulnerable is having that weak or showing your weakness. You're OK yeah. to be weak, but you can't show it. Yeah. And, and I, you know, from what my mom went through, like that, that is a safety, you know, that's a safety thing. And your life depends on that. And mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately for me, um, you know, I still ended up kind of metabolizing all this stuff and spending a lifetime in mental health care. <laughs> or I, I don't know. I'm still young. I'm still young. But, um, you know, I see pursuing this kind of, um, you know, trying to help liberate 
people and mental health care as a front for that. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that, but also I think it's important as we look back at the mess that we came from, that we understand that they had choices and we do too. And also that to understand is not to forgive. To yeah. under- mm-hmm. You could understand anything like Jeffrey Dahmer. Of course he ate those children. He had separation anxieties and that way he kept them with him. However, you don't go around eating kids, you know, that, <laughs> That is a good point. <laughs> well, I mean, come on, Harry. <laughs> Free country. Yeah, right. Yeah, I guess just to clarify too, when I when I say that, I mean, because I'm not I'm not like a fan of. Uh, I, I think I think from well for me personally, I don't think every therapist would agree on this. I think I think being able to get to the place of holding both of like the anger and the empathy and sort of integrating them. I think I think that's a really nice place to get to. It is. If possible yeah, or like or to, or to strive my big dissociation to it. book. Okay. But it's but it's it's not a, but it's not always possible and it's not always healthy or desirable just to maybe clarify. Yeah. Yeah. And nothing is yeah. always ever. But there is a sense that if you understand but you also don't forgive that and don't want that, then you can see where they came from and no you don't want to go there rather than dissociate, not see it, and be a zombie most of your life, which I think really um, most people never do stand up after the car wreck of their family system and the society. They don't even stand up and look around. They're still crawling around in the smoke and debris. And so it is important to recognize and stand up and look around and say, wow, that happened. I understand there were other choices, which I'll mm-hmm. make. And I, I also think that there's a potential life trajectory once you understand, especially the, the this larger sort of sociopolitical complex. And you say, oh, okay, well, you know, if my parents were impacted by like redlining, patriarchy, X, Y, Z, ABC, you can maybe come to a conclusion of, well, what those things did to those people resulted in what they did to me. And so I want to be an active opponent of those systems. And I want to place myself into a position where I can play a stronger role to empower more people to get rid of those things and, and mm-hmm. create a better world. You know, that's right. Um, I mean, one thing that kind of, that I went toward when I, when I was really processing the, my dad's violence and stuff is wanting to work with male perpetrators of violence specifically. It was like a, you know, this way of saying, I want to heal I want to do for my dad what he wasn't, mm. he wasn't able to receive this kind of care. care. Yeah. Um, not realizing it is very hard to work with certain kinds of perpetrators. I mean, I, I have a pretty thick skin, but it is, it's pretty hard work. Um, and then doing these, these like youth, um, like young men groups of like teaching young men, things like consent and relationships and mm. the importance of emotional expressiveness and things like that. Um, which I, I don't know if it, if it was a magic wand. I don't know if it ever will have any impact if it actually planted any seeds or not. But the the motivation behind it was, well, here's what I experienced from my dad. I know what he experienced at his, his family. I know what, you know, the military and various things did to him and his brothers. And so, you know, I want to play an active role against that. I think on the other hand, the mainstream mental health stuff would say, well, no, you just need to work on your stuff and he should have worked on his stuff and that's it. Right. But if, if you don't zoom out and say, well, but why did he end up that way? What forces of society made him that way? Then you're missing a big piece. So anyway, there's my bias in that. Well, that's a very that's a very good point because on the one hand you do want to understand, on the other hand you don't want to tolerate certain behaviors, 
And Mm -hmm. we have to understand, understand in terms of the social forces and the personal development, but at the same time set a standard for human beings and ourselves. And that's very important. And part of what psychologizing does is make it seem like it's just in your head. But our conversation and the liberation mental health model and theory has done is expand that. I I just want to say before I forget, there is a very good book called The Liberation Health Model Theory and Practice. And Dawn Belkin Martinez is the is the editor whose name is first. There's a bunch of them. So just remember that one. And it's put out in 2014. And it's expensive, unfortunately, as well. Just wanted to let people know. Yeah, I'll, I'll put some stuff on that in the show notes too. Good. Just the uh, links to their their web, the Liberation Health People's website and everything, um, and the, the little graphic. I mean, it's really incomplete, by the way. Sorry, Carissa, because um, <laughs> oh, we, <you're> okay. <laughs> we just we just kind of we've weaved through a lot of conversations. I'll actually send it to you to see see if you think it looks accurate enough to put up. Actually, yeah. And, uh, see if you want to add anything to it. Good. That it's you know I'm I'm wordy. You saw my email. <laughs> I always have a lot to say. Well, you do have a lot hey. to say. And we were ben- the beneficiaries of the lot that you said. And I think it's a good time to end this particular podcast and to thank you again for being willing to share your experiences because what we're about is the real nitty gritty of people's lives and you were willing to share yours, which is wonderful. Thank you so yeah. much. Would it be possible to do a little bit of like action items? I know that's, I was looking sure. up kind of on the model and I <laughs> put together some of those. Wonderful. Um, just the stuff that's helped me in my life. So mm-hmm. um, in a real individual way, or kind of, I'll go through like personal, cultural, institutional, because that kind of helped me framing it. Mm-hmm. Um, like personally, I do vocal lessons. That's for me, mm-hmm. I did music when I was younger and it's a way to kind of reconnect with just being in my body in a way that is challenging, but um, like expressive. Um, and then, um, oh, there was another personal. Um, oh, spirituality, um, mm-hmm. kind of exploring more of what I believe and um, within that realm, I've been able to find quite a lot of confidence and like mm-hmm. individuality, like expression. Um, in that, especially growing up from kind of, I know a whole lot of different religions in the mix, but it, it was primarily Catholicism growing up. Um, so that always feels a little naughty <laughs> to explore other things. Um, uh, but then um, as far as more cultural and institutional, um, getting involved in mutual aid networks in my area, and, and people who are involved in doing um, a kind of grassroots organizing work has been very, very helpful. And I, yes. you know, didn't really know how to do that. And beyond just Googling like my city name and mutual aid or something similar, um, you know, I, I found a lot of connections through getting involved with my local DSA um, here in central Ohio, which is, that's democratic socialists of America for mm-hmm. listeners who don't know. <laughs> um, and kind of finding that, that for me has been helpful, like in navigating the overwhelm of trying to find 
and other like-minded revolutionary types. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, um, but then, um, really, uh, oh, and, and housing organizing, that's something I've been doing for like quite a while, or I've been doing, Ooh. I just started getting involved in the organizing side, but doing volunteering, um, that I'll just plug it right now because if this is something you want to do in your city, I would absolutely recommend trying, trying, and I can try to give a link for our new website. Um, Mm. But I'm involved in a network called the Central Ohio Housing Action Network. And what we do is we um, go to our Franklin County Municipal Court and we look at who all has an eviction filed against you in the upcoming week. And then we provide resources to help you connect um, with legal aid and and with other Mm. housing assistance programs in the area Um, because you know, the people who were really involved in getting that up and started um, recognize that as a really immediate need, given that um, there was an eviction moratorium, but uh, people were, landlords are still filing evictions. And I know our particular organization was delivering, I mean, we deliver several hundred um, materials a week. So, and yeah. yeah, that is, if you're interested in yeah. trying to set up something in your area, I'd say definitely look on the website and try to try to help out because, mm. you know, anything we can do to help people with housing, I think is a it's huge. really great step in helping with their material conditions. And their psychological conditions that are related. And 41 million Americans are facing the possibility of eviction as of October 31st. So this is a huge problem, and it's a very important thing that you're doing and suggesting to our listeners. Yeah, and, and um, send send me send me the links by the way, so I can put them in the show notes, Carissa. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's I just had a thought and I lost it. Um, well, it'll come back, and when it does, it, yeah, fine. it may come back. Um, but no, just I mean, for me. As well, just really educating myself on um, kind of class struggle throughout history and different different times and places is, and I mean, been so helpful for me as I try to figure out how I can organize in the future to, um, yeah, help really transform the mental health arena because, um, yeah, capitalism is a sickness. <laughs> It is. Yeah. It is. Um, yeah, it's, you know, I don't want us to feel so alone all going through it. That's an excellent thing. Thank you so much. And I'm glad we'll have yeah, thanks, those resources. Christa. Yeah. Okay, and thank, thank you. you. Thank you. I, I mean, truly, it is. I am very thankful to have of the course. opportunity to talk about all of this. Well, yeah, we are was- really celebrating your courage to talk about it. And we're sure that our listeners will be grateful as we are. So thank Very you. validating. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Okay. It was great yeah. to have you, Carissa. Okay. Bye-bye from okay. It's Not Just we'll in Your Head. Okay. Bye. Bye. And if anybody wants to contact us, um, give feedback on this episode or feedback on anything else, uh, it's not just in your head at gmail.com. If you want to become a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash it's not just in your head.
By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolf and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. Capitalism Hits Home is a sort of broader overhead view. It explores the way that capitalism shapes our personal lives, our psyches, our relationships, our families, and it looks particularly at the sea change in American personal life as all Americans, but the top 10 or 20 percent of Americans, have our security and our chance for a future become as precarious as it always was for minorities and families headed by women. It's not just in your head and capitalism hits home are definitely complimentary. And if listeners would like to check out Capitalism Hits Home, Harriet, where should they go to find it? Either on YouTube or Democracy at Work or on my own website, harrietfraud.com.